Hi, Andrew. How are you? Uh, I'm very well. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for being here. Sure. It's great to be here. <laughs> Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Uh, sure. Okay. So um, I grew up in uh, a Boston suburb um, and I'm, I live in uh, Cambridge now. So basically in Boston. Um, and what I ate, well, so I, um, I come from a big uh, Armenian family and um, Armenians are pretty serious about their food and their cooking. <laughs> Um, you know, a gathering of any two or more Armenians is basically an excuse for a feast, um, <laughs> and holidays and, um, parties are sort of, um, studies in excess. Um, so there was a lot of, there was a lot of food and a lot of cooking and recipes, you know, between my mother and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles. And, um, so I was exposed to kind of people who love to cook pretty early on um and beyond beyond the armenian stuff uh, my mother uh, was is a very good cook and um she was um pretty adventurous um you know sort of as um interested in experimentation and and research um as anyone and and i think that's where i you know started having the same sort of tendencies um you know i grew up in the era where um it was sort of where cooking shows were all on pbs and um you know, julia child and yan can cook and all those sorts of things and um i think you know it was an it was a time when um food culture was just starting to become mainstream and and my mother was a part of that and so um yeah that's I think that kind of sums it up. Boston was not particularly interesting in terms of food at the time. It's definitely improved um, since then. <laughs> um, how, how has it improved? What's changed in Boston? Well, I think it's mostly um, that the culture has, has grown to support, um, you know, the, the presence of just more interesting restaurants. Um, I mean, I'm sure there were plenty of, restaurants in, in, um, you know, in, within, uh, cultural enclaves. But, um, when I was growing up, you didn't know about them. And if, and, and they probably, there probably were fewer of them simply because there wasn't the support, but like, I think Boston is, is a kind of provincial place or <laughs> has been. And I think people are finally waking up to the, the sort of the importance of, foods from other cultures. And so those restaurants are finally getting the, um, the due that, that, that they deserve. And, and um, so it's, it's definitely better. I mean, I lived in New York for a long time. And so I still kind of gripe about how much better <laughs> it could be. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you've explained your career tra trajectory to me before when I've interviewed you, uh, but can you explain how you ended up in food? Sure. Yeah. It's, I mean, uh, I, I started out in it and then came back to it, so, but, but the whole trajectory is really kind of convoluted and um, I'm sort of somebody who has always had a lot of interests and I, I kind of never, um, never do anything halfway and so that mm -hmm. sort of leads me to follow paths far away from one thing and um, come back <laughs> to them. So I... I um, 
I started out working in restaurants um, during a little bit in high school, but in college uh, in New York City, um, you know, as a way to have um, pocket money, pay the bills. Um, and then in summers where I was paying my own rent and things like that. And um, so I started out just, I was a waiter that worked in front of the house at a couple of places. And then um, I kind of, I had a, um, there was a chef one particular restaurant who sort of took a liking to me and understood my interest in cooking and he um he said you know you should would you be interested in working in the kitchen and he let me kind of with no um with no real proof that i could do anything uh, <laughs> to work uh, gar manger it was a small restaurant and um and so i immediately um just jumped in do it and 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 I never went back to waiting tables after that because it was really much more my thing um and I did that for for a few years and um eventually worked my way up um uh, the, for the longest time I worked at a place in the West Village called the Universal Grill which um which was a great place to work it was a really tiny little restaurant and um it sort of uh, it was very um unique in in every way it, it prided itself on or at least thinking itself as the gayest restaurant in new york city or the gayest restaurant in the world i forget what their tagline was but um it was very like a kind of a hub of of a lot of um gay cultural activity and it was just a fun place to work um especially since um the while well, the food it was important that the food be of a certain caliber the owners didn't really want to want to have anything to do with that, so they left the few of us in the kitchen to our own devices to kind of come up with recipes and be creative. And it was small enough that if I was cooking, I was the only person. I was eventually I worked my way up to sous chef, and if I was there, I was in charge of the menu for the night, and so it gave me a, a lot of creativity. So um, that was kind of where I forged my um, my skills um and then i stayed in restaurants for a little bit longer after that i moved back to boston um and but i kind of i found sort of other interests pushing in against that one and um i eventually decided i want to go back to school i, I had studied literature and film in college um and but was sort of had caught the science bug and so i um i decided that I, I was going to be, I wanted to be a doctor. I, mm -hmm. I, it seems kind of crazy now that <laughs> I thought that. But so I, I went back to school to do pre-med courses because I hadn't really taken any of those uh, kinds of classes in college. And um, I started out in chemistry and found that I had this kind of acuity for it. And also just, a, it, I found it really interesting. And while I was doing some of these courses, I um, I kind of talked my way into a an internship at a um, a pharmaceutical company here in Cambridge, and um, that internship um, ended up getting renewed several times, and eventually it just became a full time job. And I sort of dropped the pre med idea in favor of just kind of becoming an organic chemist, um, which which is because organic chemistry is basically cooking at least in the practical 
aspects of it. It's just like cooking. You have a recipe, you put a bunch of stuff in a container, you heat it up and it, can, it transforms into something else. And I'd always been good at recipes and good at cooking. So, um, so it's sort of like, it was an easy shift for me. Um, and I did that for 12 years because it, it was, you know, working for a corporation, it paid well. And um, I, um, and I, I enjoyed it most of the time. Um, and then uh, while I was there, I, um, I caught another bug and this was uh, in, you know, the study of mycology and mushrooms. And one of the, be one of the benefits of working there was that they, um, they paid for higher education and so i was able to get a, a master's degree in, or most of it um, I, I didn't finish it until after i left there but uh in biology with a study of um, fungi and um and in um cult mushroom cultivation and foraging and things like that um so that that's where i ended up uh, that's where i was when just by coincidence um, I met somebody, a friend of a, um, of a, the partner of, um, my brother-in-law who worked at America's test kitchen and she heard my crazy resume, my story of how I, you know, what I'd done all these years. And she's like, Oh, you know, you'd be the perfect candidate for a job at, um, uh, America's test kitchen. It's just like, they love people with all those kinds of background and, and also the sort of skill set was perfect for it. So I applied and, um, I took a massive pay cut and, and the rest is history. Then, um, and I was there for uh, about the same, uh, about uh, 11 years uh, up until last year. When did bread become the focus? Um, so it's funny because I work, I was thinking about this in, I worked in two bakeries in high school and it didn't, it didn't register as a thing of, that I was at all interested in. And, and during college, I went, I spent a semester in Paris and somehow I'm sure I ate lots of good bread, but somehow the idea that I was surrounded by all these amazing bakeries just never, never even occurred to me to like, you know, think about it while I was there. I was kind of more interested in spending time in movie theaters and uh, art museums. And so I didn't come to bread until very late in the game. Um, and the thing that kind of sparked that was probably, this is probably true for many people, um, was the uh, Noni Bittman, <laughs> Leahy, Noni Bread. Um, in, you know, and I, I'm, I think I made it right after the article came out in 09. And, mm -hmm. um, and I, it both kind of, it both kind of sparked the, the idea that like, oh, anyone, that good bread can be had at home and that actually maybe at home homemade bread is better than what you can get at least from bakeries um at the time um or just the fact that you're pulling it hot from a, a, the oven yourself means you're you're getting it at the peak of its freshness mm -hmm. um and it quickly i quickly was like oh i think i need to to dig into this more deeply um and the sort of the fundamentals the foundation had been there all along because i because the thing that I that brought me to cooking in the first place when I was a kid before I started working in restaurants and was pizza I was obsessed with pizza um I think like the first cookbook and kitchen tool I ever personally owned was a pizza pan and a book that my mother gave me as a birthday present and um and so that had been something that like all throughout my life since that moment I'd been like 
tinkering with my own recipes and and almost like and uh cooks illustrated started in 93 so that was you know as i was during college and, and i start i think i subscribed to it from the beginning at that point and so i understood that kind of like um iterative testing process uh for recipe development and i and i did a lot of that uh with my pizza recipe over the years and so it sort of laid the groundwork for where i ended up but it wasn't um but it, so that after no need bread i started digging into recipes and taking classes and um that was really where i i kind of fell hard for it um, and but the yeah go, sorry go on no no but yeah how did you come to your kind of current uh approach to it yeah well so um I was, there's a lot there's a lot of aspects to it like I think that like I mean bread itself is something I I came to realize is just like I don't know I don't really it's weird to find something so basic that you like um, didn't realize you could be in love with when you ate it all the time anyway maybe it's just because I never had good bread but I'm <laughs> sure I did um but there's so many things about it that I love that it's hard to even you know narrow it down I mean one of the one of them is simply um that bread bakers are kind of, they're really great people. Like the, the people who work in the industry mm -hmm. and the, teacher, the teachers I've had, um, they're just really, they're really generous and they're fun to be around. And so when I was a student of it at the, in the beginning of my time, I just was like, oh, these are my people in a way. Mm -hmm. and, and their passion for it um, kind of quickly became my own. Um, and, but I, in terms of the bread itself and what what, what the, the many things I love about it, one of them is just like that it's a, unlike any other kind of cooking, it's it's a relationship, it's a dynamic thing that like is is never is never complete. A recipe is ne you never perfect a technique. It's uh, like sometimes it works amazingly and sometimes it doesn't, and um, you have to kind of constantly bring yourself back to the um I mean it's a living organism and if you're not paying close attention to it if you're not um if you're not kind of adjusting to it then it kind of resists um resists be, being what you want it to be um so you, you need to kind of bring yourself down to its level up to its level um i should say mm -hmm. um and um there's just and also there's just something um i always talk about it like i do a lot of overnight recipes like mm -hmm. in the fridge overnight or, or on the counter and um there's something like every time i come downstairs from you know my bedroom and and see what's happening in the kitchen um it's like a little mini christmas morning like it's just like <laughs> i'm so excited to see wh what i what it's managed to do for me in the interim and um so there's there's just a lot of i don't know a lot of little joys in of course doing it. yeah and, you know, you left your longtime post at America's Test Kitchen to focus on your newsletter as well as freelance. And mm -hmm. you recently wrote about competing recipe style guides, which I thought was really <laughs> interesting um, because 
uh, for myriad reasons, like one that I develop recipes to that I have, was a copy editor. So like, how has yeah. that transition been for you into working for so many different places plus yourself? Because I know that it is very difficult. <laughs> yes, um, that has been that. Yeah, that that that's been one of the many challenges of, of doing this all, all solo. Um, yeah, you know, I didn't. I didn't come to, so I came, as I said, I came to America's Test Kitchen as a cook and a science person and um, not as a journalist. I had no training in journalism. And so like the, a style guide wasn't even something, I mean, I'm sure I had a MLA or whatever in college, but I didn't know that it was a thing. And so when I learned like how how America's Test Kitchen, America's Test Kitchen did their thing, I didn't like think, oh, that's their style guide. I just thought, that's how everybody does it. And um, I absorbed that uh, over time. But then after leaving, I realized, oh, this isn't how everybody does it. It's just one idiosyncratic approach to it and other places do it differently. And and it, that makes sense. Every place has a different kind of needs and a different audience to cater to. Um, mm-hmm. But it's maddening to have to, <laughs> have to, it's like having to speak a different language every time you do you know pick up a, the phone right to speak to somebody else um and it's really hard to adjust um so um but you know it, it is what it is um i i do feel like i wish we could have like an international congress of um, <laughs> style, recipe style guides and just kind of come up with one thing yeah um, so no, it's funny yeah. because I wrote about salt today and how like I'm going to try and not use diamond crystal anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And I was it was so That's funny. The Cargill to me, thing. The Cargill thing yeah. <laughs> where I found out that it's owned by Cargill uh, since 1997. I had like literally no idea because it's never the that's never the point of anything anyone's talking about when they're talking about salt and which yeah. salt to use. It's always about what's accessible and the volume and, and like it's never I, I also want this standard recipe conference because uh, I want the salt issue to be resolved <laughs> like because the LA Times is like okay we're only going to use diamond crystal and then the Washington Post is like we're only going to use fine sea salt and it's like at some but you, you know how many salts do you expect like a regular person to have you know in their kitchen like that's I don't know and, and I think it needs to be resolved I think diamond crystal should I'm I'm just like really horrified that people have always been like diamond crystal is the best and no one's ever said that they're owned by Cargill um yeah I that was news to me and until I think you probably retweeted somebody a month or two ago and I was like oh it never occurred to me I mean somebody (laughs) somebody ought to make a um a you know a, a bespoke salt that has the exact same weight to volume ratio and is as just as good in terms of the way yeah. it sprinkles or whatever and then we can stop using it uh, i was i was a kosher salt diamond kosher salt person until maybe that also sort of swayed me in the right. other direction but um i do think that like it's as annoying as hell that kosher salt comes in these two different volume to weight right. ratios and it i think i'm now in the sea salt's better camp because sea yeah. salt is sea salt is sea salt yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, apparently there's a Norwegian kosher salt that is the same um, oh, really? <laughs> as diamond crystal, <laughs> but you can't get as, you know, you're not getting a 10 pound, five pound box no. of it. So no. that's, that's the, the issue here is, is how much 
yeah, how much you're getting, how much bang for your buck, which I guess yeah. is why Diamond Crystal really owned the game for so long <laughs> and continues yeah. to, continues to. Like, I don't think I'm going to change um, the way chefs act, but <laughs> at least I <laughs> no. can let people, more people know that Cargill owns this and and to make their own choices now. Um, yeah, well, the, the other thing is that's like, that's a kind of a very niche question, but like the right. bigger questions like metric versus right uh, imperial and weight to volume and baking yeah. recipes and that stuff is just maddening like so you, yeah. you asked about my own style right 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 was like um for me like it's kind of like i feel like a style guide not only should be logical and clear um it should also kind of teach people something like you, you know to to give people options is to right. not encourage them to pick one over the other and right. so i decided i'm getting rid of volume measurements um because i think it forces people to do something that eventually they'll come to see is easier right right uh no and i agree i don't like i hate volume recipes um yeah it's just i mean the only thing for me is that to keep batteries in my scale you know that's the, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. the <challenge>. <laughs> <laughs> is remembering whether it's double a or triple a when i go to the store that's my that's yeah. my struggle um but i wanted to ask how you're uh, maintaining creativity and balance between the work you're doing for other people and for your newsletter because people ask me all the time and for me i think it's kind of obvious most of the time what's for the newsletter and what isn't like speaking again of the salt piece it's like i know how i could expand the salt piece and make it really a lot better and like three thousand words and like <laughs> a lot more affecting but like i'm not going to do that for my like weekly blog um but yeah so basically how do you balance those things that you're doing well i, I think i'm i'm sort of in a similar camp with, with that I, I i and i it took me a while to figure out that that was what the, it was but i right. i use it as a sort of a scratch pad for whatever's on my mind and mm-hmm. um and and i i don't necessarily feel like things need to be you know kind of resolved uh, right. when i write about them there and i think maybe from the outside i hope this isn't the case but maybe from mm-hmm. the outside it sort of seems very disjointed like one week I'll be giving a recipe and the next week I'll be talking about style guides and (laughs) um and so I hope that like when you see the overall arc of things you can see that I keep circling back to certain themes and um but I find it very useful uh as a kind of idea generating place and I'm kind of I'm I'm grateful uh that people are willing to kind of follow along there because you know people are people pay to subscribe and and that seems like an amazing thing that people want to kind of hear me just like think out loud right 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 yeah no that's and I like that aspect of newsletters I think a lot of people don't really get that they don't yeah maybe if because they don't do it they don't understand the value of having to be consistently creative and that it's not necessarily an ends in itself, but it's just a way of thinking. Like it's, it's just a practice that, that you can have. And, and it is, you know, that people will go along with it is, is really interesting. Um, and have you found a real connection with your audience there? Yeah, it's, um, for sure. I've, I found that like the, the fact of their 
their presence and I mean, I guess, you know, one one nice thing about having a paid option is that if people are paying, they don't have to comment to show their appreciation for what you're doing. Um, I have, I, I feel like the one thing that I've wanted to, well, it's not the only thing, but one of the things I want to develop more of there is a, a sense of community. I, mm -hmm. I feel like, um, I feel like it's probably on me to figure out a way to foster that more um, uh, because there is some some of it, but not as much as there perhaps could be, where people are not only commenting and, and interacting with me, but also communicating with one another right. uh, more. Right. And maybe that's a question of like starting open threads or or in questions where right. people get to weigh in. Um, but one of the things that you know, the hardest part or a, a hard part of, of doing the newsletter and being a full time freelancer is just finding the time to implement all these different ideas I have for yeah. making it better. It's, it's very <laughs> slow. It's really slow. It's very hard. I like, I want to open up to new, like have other people contribute, but it, I have to like make sure I'm, you know, fully available to do the yeah. best editing work and everything like that. And, and it, it, it is really hard to, I, I don't know. It's funny how like Substack is say is all like independent newsletters of the future, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, there's, it is in a way, but at the same time, like it's not sustainable at all to do without support. Like it's, it's, it's impossible to like grow into the way the, you know, that you might have a vision for, you know, without the support of a team um yeah yeah <laughs> definitely, I, definitely. That, I, there's um there's so much i can see so many places where it could be uh more than it is and maybe yeah. it will be someday i mean part, part part of it's just a question of time yeah if i if i didn't have the freelance work then um i might be able to double the amount of stuff i do there um yeah. And I, the problem is I actually enjoy most of the, or nearly all of the freelance work I'm doing are things I'm interested in. So I'm, yeah. I'm happy to have it. So I, I do, uh, I just could like, if maybe there just needs to be more days in the week, although I don't yeah. see it working more <laughs> is not a good idea either. No, no. Uh, yeah. It's a hard balance for me. The struggle right now is finishing my book and then, and also doing right. the newsletter. Um, that that I, I couldn't imagine. Although I, I have a book project that I need to get going on, that, that I, I, won't, I don't want to talk about it much yet. But, um, <laughs> but I, the idea of trying to juggle that seems impossible. it's hard. It's really hard. But it's like I can't. You know, the the newsletter in a great way, but you know, it became my the bulk of my income. But I didn't know that that was going to happen. Like, thank God mm -hmm. it happened. But like, yeah. Um, and then I have to keep it up and to write the book because the advance was so shitty. <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. So like I and like I sold the book before like my new, like literally weeks before my newsletter kind of like popped off. I guess last year. I don't know. So it's like constantly maintaining this balance in this kind of work where, you know, you're weighing the, the pros and cons of like literally every small decision. Um, yeah. but you know, I, I remember when I, I quoted you about flour in a past newsletter and you talked about ingredient sourcing and flour sourcing, it caused a little bit of controversy it in like, the artisanal <laughs> flour community. Um, and so, you know, I also, I talked to Roxana Julepot about this recently while talking about Mother Grains, her book. And, you know, I think we're Which all- I love. 
Yeah. Yeah. And we're all constantly trying to find this balance or we're all, I think like people who try to care both about like accessibility and, and taste and ecology and like trying to juggle all of these ideas at once, um, you know, you have to think about what's good for your local ecosystem and what's also realistic. And so what are your thoughts on flower and accessibility right now? So, um, yeah, I, I, I got, um, I got kind of yelled at by somebody, uh, about <laughs> for use, for using the term fancy flower to refer <laughs> to, um, sort of, you know, um, fresh milled local regional, um, flowers, which I love and use all the time. Um, and, um, I think are important to, they're important, it's an important like aspect of the industry to, to promote, um, but it's but it, it's only a piece of the the, the story um, you know there's so many there's so many issues with making that kind of thing accessible to, to everyone uh, it's very expensive uh, it's not accessible in terms of most supermarkets don't carry anything like mm -hmm. that and um, you know mail order is definitely possible but not only is, does that add to the cost, but it, it adds to the carbon footprint of the, the thing. And um, so, I, you know, I, I try in the newsletter and elsewhere to, to encourage people to seek out those kinds of things um, if they're in their local economy. Um, and to, you know, I think, you know, a great deal of my audience is likely can afford to spend as much as, possible on flower and maybe so i think the person that wasn't happy with that term um was coming from that perspective is in, in like you need to kind of almost force people who can afford to, to use better products and yeah. uh, more more sustainable whatever um mm -hmm. and uh so i think that's a good thing but i, I think it, it's important not to forget that there are people who can't afford that and some of those people might not be part of my audience but they but I'm also, maybe I'm not attracting them because I'm, if I'm kind of limiting myself to boutique um, ingredients. So I want, I kind of want to come at it from both sides. Yeah. And um, so, and the other, there's another aspect, which is kind of related to that, which is that you the thing about flowers, uh, flowers that are kind of boutique is that each one needs to be uh, the recipe needs to be developed specifically for that flower. Whereas if you if you call for a commodity uh, or sort of a well-known flower, they're consistent across the country. You know, people can get King Arthur flower yeah. from one side of the country to the other, and it's going to behave the same way in, in, no, more, no matter where you get it. And so then all of a sudden the recipe becomes accessible to more people. And so it's... It's a challenge because if you want to encourage those kinds of things, you need to teach people how to use them and how to yeah. how to adapt to them in a way like to say, I don't know what your flower is going to be like, but here's what to look for and how to adjust if that's the case. Yeah. Um, but but still, I, I mean, it's I, it's really important because the. I think maybe flour is one, I think Roxanne said this, or maybe she was talking about sugar, but I think they're similar in the, um, that it's one of those unexamined monoliths in our our food culture that um, we don't 
you know, we just think flour is just a thing you get <laughs> and you, you, you know, you buy some flour, whatever, it doesn't matter what it is, as long as it's the best style you need. And uh, as opposed to thinking about how, how huge the industry is and how difficult it would be to dismantle that sort of thing and replace it with something that is more sustainable and equitable. And so it's, I think we have to start somewhere and, and talking about flowers that are made from grains that are grown locally. I mean, I'm lucky to live in New England, which before it was the heartland was the breadbasket of America. Mm -hmm. And so good grain can be grown here and, is, and more and more is, is being grown. And so I have access to really great local flour, but not everyone does. Um, although I think there's probably opportunities to like grow flowers that can can be adapted for, for whatever um, environment you live in. I mean, there's some cool flowers that grow in the desert, uh, wheats that grow in the desert that are being milled into flour. And so, and actually we, we might need more of those because I, I haven't really delved too deep into it, but like they're saying this year has been really bad for uh, droughts in Midwest and Canada. And like, it's kind of, yeah. I don't know if it's like the end or if it's just like a blip <laughs> in the kinds of things that we're going to see more and more of over time. So yeah. it's a little scary to think, cause yeah. like if we can't grow, I mean, me being able to have make my bread is important to me, but like beyond that access to something like flour going away is hard to fathom how, how damaging that would be to our right. economies and our lives. Yeah, no, I think about that a lot, especially because living in Puerto Rico, like I can get King Arthur, but I have to go to the special store and I have to pay like way more than I would have paid in New York right. for it. And then it's funny because... I think if I tried to learn how to cook here, every recipe would be a nightmare <laughs> because <laughs> of the humidity and, and like, yeah. the and so like, because I already know how to cook, I'm like, I know how to compensate for things, but like, I, I just want to see more recipes, I think written. And I guess I should start doing this for like, you know, the, the gluten-free flowers that are you know more locally produced like the cassava right. flower and the breadfruit flower and everything and like and plantain flower even um because you know uh as we keep saying here it's like well soon everyone will know what this is like <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. to live in the tropics like you know new york is subtropical now um and so yeah it's just really interesting to think about and to kind of like try to reframe I don't know. I, yeah, I use like the local grain thing to to question I, or whatever to think about, yeah, how we might make things in the future that are recognizable to us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just hard to imagine uh, a world or it's hard to imagine living in a world where um, something as fundamental as wheat yeah. were, were to go away. Um, <laughs> it's scary. But... Yeah, it is scary. And there's and I love alternative flowers, but you you can't get a baguette out of cassava yeah. flour. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. No, and that's the thing is like, and it's about kind of you know, thinking about life without a baguette is depressing. Um, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I that's what I'm gonna have for breakfast. I have some anyway. Um, <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> Let me enjoy it while I have it. Now yes. that I'm thinking about that. Um, but through your newsletter, you're also kind of, you're teaching classes on Zoom. And 
you know, we talked about the like the different styles of writing recipes, but you know, just to write recipes down in a in a methodical manner is so difficult for me personally. Like, what is your process for doing that? What tools have maybe helped you do that? You know, you know, how do you how have you found your teaching voice basically? So um, it's really interesting because. I'm I'm deeply introverted, um, right. and so teaching is the farthest, especially in person, but uh, in front of people, Zoom or in, in a room full of them. Um, but I, I actually have come to love it, um, and I never would have guessed that would be the case. Um, I so I I, I realized I started teaching baking and cooking because I saw it is an opportunity to get to get to kind of hang out in spaces that I was just like a, a, a consumer of where I wanted to like, <laughs> I wanted to get to go to baking conferences and get paid instead of having yeah, to pay. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to be able to like go to places like King Arthur and um, on their dime instead of mine. And so I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm just going to like, see if they, they'll let me teach something. Um, but I quickly realized that actually I really like doing it. And, and so I do it for, for its own sake now. Um, and you know, I find it it's challenging, but also it's a it's a, it's a great it's a great tool for figuring out um, and kind of codifying what I know um, and what I don't know. Like if I have to develop, a, I often I often will propose classes for things that I haven't quite finished figuring out, but it, I, knowing that it would be an opportunity to like get it done um and so there's and there's something kind of fun about like jumping without a net into into something um like that and so in terms of the newsletter and the recipes um I think I think I've like figured out how to how to teach or I'm learning how to teach and in in classes and i think i have converted some of that into how to how to write about write about it but i, I but i'm i think i'm still developing that a little bit more early on in the process um like i feel like i've been cycling through saying things and figuring out the <laughs> best way to say something so like i, I i've talked about, i often talk about the same kinds of or the same topics, like how to how to work with the sourdough starter, or right. um, how to do uh, techniques like folding and whatnot. And um, I'm never quite sure how to how to how to pass that along to somebody who, for whom it's, you know they're naive to those concepts. Um, but I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, I and mean, I feel like the thing that I think about most um, in kind of the most in a sort of abstract way is how do you teach people to think like a baker does? Right. It's not straightforward. I don't know if that's, you know, I don't know if it's true for every skill or, um, but it, I spent a lot of time thinking about like, what is it gonna like flip the switch in somebody's head um, when they're doing a, a technique? Like right. it's not, it's not just straightforward, like do this and get that result. It's right. more like, think like this and you'll be able to figure out how to get that result. Exactly. Yeah. It's a one step removed from the process. So, yeah. But I'm still trying to, still trying to get my head around that. <laughs> well, for you, is cooking a political act? Um, yes. 
I mean, yes, it is. It, it, in as much as I feel like you, um, I feel like it's important to keep that in your mind when you're doing it. I think it's such an easy thing to forget yeah. that food and cooking have, um, you know, it's such a fundamental thing. It's like bre- is breathing a political act. It's almost, <laughs> it's almost the same, but like, but it actually like air is important too. And, yeah. and it has, but so like food is that is so fundamental that it's just easy to forget that like, it has so much, so many implications in terms of, you know, hunger is the flip side to uh, eating is the hunger. And maybe, you know, you're satisfying your own hunger, but like other people don't even have the option to satisfy right. it um, or um, equity in terms of who's making our food or who's, who's growing or picking our fruits. And, um, and then all of the impacts on climate and, um, resource resources and so i mean i i feel like i i try to deliberately keep that in mind i mean it's not like always there but um but i just feel like it's important not never to forget that it's part of a system that um that is not great and needs a lot of (laughs) needs a lot of work and um i think that especially if you're in in the world of food and cooking, you, you can have an impact, a positive impact in that if you keep it in mind. Right. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it was my pleasure. I was so happy to be here.